And we are back with the newly revamped Eddie Green's 101. This is no longer Terminator 101, even though I will always be ready to talk Terminator. This is Eddie Green's 101. Uh, Terminator 101 was my passion project. This was uh, something that I always wanted to do, start something and then really stick to it and dedicate myself to it. And I did that with Terminator 101. Over a year of content, 50 episodes, and it felt like it was time to retool it, give it a new identity, a fresh take, a new direction. And uh, this is going to be a podcast that will be mostly film-related. Absolutely. Film is my favorite thing in life. Um, And... Of course, every once in a while, there might be something that might not be film-related. So I hope if you're a a listener from Terminator 101, I hope you'll continue to listen, and I hope you'll support me in this new direction. And I hope if you're a new listener that you'll check out the previous episodes, assuming you like Terminator as well. Um, You know, either way you're coming at this, I uh, I think it's awesome, and I hope you guys will enjoy this. This is episode one of the new podcast, and uh, for this episode, I wanted to kind of keep it in line with uh, Terminator 101, just to kind of ease people into it. So this is going to be a James Cameron-centric discussion with a special guest who I will talk about here shortly. Um, But if you know me, if you follow me on social media at T101Podcast, if you know me personally in real life... You know that James Cameron is my favorite filmmaker. I love a lot of different filmmakers. And I have a fun little uh, thing that I uh, approach that word filmmaker with. It's just a, it's just a weird little thing, the, like the way my mind works. Um, and uh, I don't know if I'm going to talk about that uh, here, but uh, at some point I will make sure that I uh, bring that up, my kind of thought process when it comes to the word filmmaker. Anyways, uh, off on a side tangent. He's my favorite filmmaker. I have a lot of them, but James Cameron is my go-to guy. And so for this one, I wanted to talk about him. And I didn't just want to talk about him by myself. I usually try to get new and fresh voices here on the podcast. And so I reached out to a uh, YouTuber uh, who is someone who is so intelligent, so humble, you'll, you you know, you'll never hear him uh, say that. You'll never hear him say that he's intelligent or that he's funny or that he's anything. That's how humble he is, but he is. He's, He's all those and much more. His channel is one of the best. I love every single one of his videos. They are just, uh, uh, you sense so much love in each and every one of his videos, and that's what I love about him. His name is Daisuke Beppu. He is from Tokyo, Japan. He is just so knowledgeable about a lot of different things, and uh, his channel is mostly dedicated to the Criterion Collection, which is a wonderful, wonderful label that releases classic and contemporary films on home media. And so I reached out to him because I wanted to just get him on the podcast in general. But for this episode, I felt like it would be really fun. So I sent him some topics and some uh, 
questions that I wanted him and I to both cover in this episode. So this is an episode that is kind of rare because for most of my content, I usually just approach it almost in an impromptu manner. You know, I obviously think about what I want to talk about prior to recording, but for the most part, there's not a whole lot of note taking or anything like that that I put into this stuff. For this one, it was a little different because uh, I wanted to, you know, make sure that he felt comfortable coming on and and that uh, uh, we could really bounce off of each other, play a nice little tennis match uh, for the first time because I do want to get him back on the podcast because he was so much fun to talk to. He's a delight. I strongly suggest checking out his YouTube channel. Um, it's just his name, Daisuke Beppu. And uh, yeah, having said all of that, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you are going to enjoy this episode because I had such a blast recording it. Thank you, Daisuke, for coming on. And after this quick sponsor, it's time for some 101 with Daisuke Beppu. All right, guys. So before we get into the episode, I want to shout out my current and past Patreon members over at patreon.com slash t101podcast. Lucas Grudzian, Engelbert Sebastian, Ruben Dobson, Danny Pyrate, Ami Prasad, T-Bob Art, Marie Spurlick, Oliver Mercer, and Michael Wellen. Thank you all for your patronage to the 101 Passion Project. If you want to join that list, get added content, exclusive benefits, early episodes, giveaways, all that fun stuff, like I said, head over to patreon.com slash t101podcast. Alrighty, and we are back. And... On the other end of the line, we have a very, very special guest, someone who, if you're not familiar with his name, you absolutely should be. Um, I'm going to have all the links down below in the show notes for you guys to check and click. Um, we are talking with Daisuke Beppu, who is a YouTuber uh, based in Tokyo, Japan. And it's funny how you can be on YouTube and just stuff pops up. And I don't really, I don't really remember what it was that brought me to your channel i have a i have a interest in the uh the criterion collection but nowhere near as much as daisuke does and um that might have been it because I, I was looking at uh, criterion collection videos but having checked out his channel i can honestly say that this is the reason why i reached out to him in the first place he is someone who, beyond the Criterion Collection, he can talk about a film like The Room, which is one of my favorite videos that he has put out, um, and provide this insightful commentary on something of that quality. And then he can talk about something on the complete opposite side of the spectrum. So when I was thinking about inviting him and covering the topics that we are about to cover here, uh, I was really excited because Daisuke is just incredibly knowledgeable, um, very humble, and uh, I love the way he presents himself on his videos. So I could go on and on and, and praise him, and um, I'm sure he wouldn't want that. Uh, so without further ado, I just want to uh, say thank you very much, Daisuke, for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. And really, your words are, are way too kind. Thank you very much for the praise. But uh, really, I, I'm, I'm totally not deserving of such high praise. But I thank you all the same for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's my, uh, it's, it's my honor to have you on here because I really strive 
for the highest possible quality when it comes to who I have on. And, um, with you, like I said, I am just, uh, I can rest assured that uh, this episode is going to go really, really well. So before we get into the stuff that, uh, we have prepared, um, because I did send him the topics in advance to, uh, kind of give him a little time to get ready. Um, if you'll just let my listeners know exactly who you are, why you chose to start a YouTube channel and whatever else you want to talk about for however long as you would like to talk about it. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for your kind invitation. Uh, it, it was really a nice surprise. And I usually don't get, uh, I, I have appeared as guests on another podcast. It's, it's not so frequent. And so to get an invite uh, like this from you and your podcast, which is a really interesting one. I, it's it's such a, a pleasure and honor for me. So I, I really want to thank you very much for this and to uh, to be able to hear your thoughts and and uh, ideas and comments about uh, James Cameron films and uh, the like. So thank you very much for this opportunity. First of all, it's a real pleasure. Um, and I, I suppose I should just preface by saying that I am in way I don't consider myself a film critic I am I don't uh, I'm not a film critic by profession uh, this YouTube thing that I do is is merely a hobby that I do and it's essentially just a, a, it was a means for me to just be able to uh, have a platform just to talk uh, to let things out as it were about certain uh, films that I liked, certain uh, discs that I had in my collection. And uh, that was basically it. Uh, but slowly but surely, uh, my focus uh, tended towards things in the Criterion collection, the physical me media releases from the Criterion collection. But I tried to uh, cover uh, as many things as possible, just based... Uh, primarily on my own interests in film. And I, as I say, I'm not a film critic, but I have been watching films since I was very little. And I rely uh, almost primarily on sort of my own uh, direct experiences through that. So I suppose this is uh, just a, another way for me to say to you and to your listeners that uh, if you are, I guess, if you find that my comments uh, about James Cameron and his films is a little bit underwhelming or, or disappointing, I, I want to apologize up front in advance because I don't want to claim that I am in any way a James Cameron expert or a, a scholar. I haven't, I haven't studied his films in great depth or detail. I do know his films. I have seen all of his films uh, all of them more than once. And so I, I do have that connection with them. But um, And uh, I, that's the extent to which I'll be able to share my, my thoughts about his films in the, in the context of the conversation that I look forward to having with you. But uh, that, that's basically where I am with my YouTube channels. Nothing particularly, uh, it's, it's nothing particularly uh, high-tech, it's just me sitting in a room talking about a particular film. But I've been very fortunate to be able to have uh, uh, been able to meet a lot of people through that platform, a lot of people 
very nice and very generous with their time to uh, watch uh, a, a minute or two here and there of video. And I think that was uh, one of the ways, I think that was the, the way in which you and I first connected. And I think it was maybe on a particular live stream that I had conducted one time and you had very kindly sent a question about James Cameron and what I thought about James Cameron. And I think I replied. And from there, we, we had uh, conversations which led up to this, this great moment. Yes, yes. Um, it, it is really fascinating to me that, um, you know, because I'm also a film enthusiast and uh, collector of certain things. And, you know, I do have a James Cameron collection because he is definitely my, my all-time favorite. And uh, I have a physical media collection of his films and whether or not it's directing or just a writing credit he has, I'm trying to accumulate everything and all the variants and, and everything, which is very similar to what you have with uh, your collection, which is mm. dedicated to the Criterion collection. You have, correct me if I'm wrong, you have the entire collection, right? Uh, I suppose you can say that. Yes. Okay, but not just in one form. You have it um, in the laser discs. You have it in the DVDs and the Blu-rays. You have everything, which is um, really what makes you, a, you know, along with your comments and your your uh, very um, incredible way of presenting your ideas. It's so it's so comfortable to watch one of your videos. It's very relaxing and. Um, but it's just, those are the things that make you stand out and why I think a lot more people, if they're a, you know, a Criterion Collection fan or not should check out your channel because, um, just your love for film comes across in every single video that you do. And it's, uh, it, it's actually inspiring too, but that's sort of like my second focus. Mm -hmm. So, um, it is very inspiring to see someone who, you know, on a pretty much daily basis puts out videos and, and uh, just talks about what they love. And that's really awesome. So that's really why I wanted to get you on here. And um, I'm sure everybody listening can, can already tell how uh, just really, you know, down to earth you are and, you know, there's no big ego surrounding you. And that's, that's also really refreshing. So uh, thank you for being you is what I'm trying to say. No, not at all. Thank and thank you. Let me just say thank you very much for your own enthusiasm and focus. You know, we need more podcasts and more YouTube channels and blogs like yours and your efforts here. It's, it's great. It, it makes, it makes the community uh, a lot stronger and, and much more uh, uh, varied, which is great because cinema is indeed, it, it's too vast to be able to cover uh, through just one blog or YouTube channel or, or whatever. I think we need as many voices as possible. So uh, yours is, is, is certainly a, a great one to have there. My goodness, I just, uh, uh, just listening to your uh, dissection of uh, uh, James Cameron's filmography uh, for example, vis-a-vis -vis George Lucas or, or a certain film or certain, it's, it's fascinating. So, so kudos to you, my friend. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so there you go, guys, that who, you know, that is who Daisuke is. And, uh, like I said, his link will be down below. So, uh, feel free to click it and you know, give him a subscribe and 
and definitely support him in his ventures because I think you'll be uh, rewarded in the end. So having said all of that, um, we're going to dive into now our uh, main discussion, which is going to be a focus on James Cameron. And uh, what's interesting about this, Daisuke, is um, when people are listening to this episode, the podcast itself will have gone through a kind of transition because um, when I initially created the podcast, it was a, a real focus on Terminator because out of everything Cameron has done, the Terminator films, I think, are his masterworks. And um, that is really where I wanted to focus my attention. And I always knew in the back of my head that at some point, there would come a time where I would have to kind of transition the podcast to either be a focus on widening my range of Cameron films or being a, a, a total movie podcast. And I don't want to go the route of being a total movie podcast just yet because I've kind of done that in the past and it can be overwhelming. Mm. But when they're listening to this, it will no longer be Terminator 101. It's going to be Cameron 101. Um, so that is really why I, I extended the invitation out to you. And you're going to be the first episode of uh, the new podcast that is you know, dedicated to the entirety of James Cameron's um, kind of career. So um, having said all of that, I wanted to, with Daisuke, I wanted to focus on, I believe it's, I have my list here. I believe it's, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, seven topics that I wanted to kind of uh, uh, be a tennis match between me and Daisuke going back and forth. Um, so the first topic, I just have these in random order here. I don't know what uh, order they're on your sheet, but um, is there a, a particular one you wanted to start with or in any order is fine no any order is fine okay um so i think the one that i would like to start with and um i'll take the reins here for the first one and then we'll uh, like i said be a, a tennis match going back and forth here sure um the top performance okay. in a james cameron film <laughs> And when I initially sent these questions or topics to Daisuke, after I sent them to him, I, I felt they were kind of vague. So I followed it up with another kind of uh, lengthy reply and kind of gave more of a gist for each one of the topics. So with this one, the top performance, um, this can be in any James Cameron film. And by the way, everybody, we are focusing on, we have decided to focus on eight films in Cameron's uh, filmography, which is including Piranha to the spawning, which is a, a topic all, you know, in and of itself yes. in terms of whether or not you actually will include that in a James Cameron filmography. But yes, Daisuke and I have decided to include that. So in those eight films, the one performance that truly stands out to you. So Daisuke and myself, the one performance that really stood out to you yes. um, as being something that truly transcended all of the other performances that you have seen in a prior James Cameron film. And this is one that I had a pretty easy time uh, coming to my conclusion for because um, for me, 
and I'm really curious to know what yours is. But uh, for me, I believe the the number one performance that James Cameron has captured in all of his films belongs to Linda Hamilton in the Terminator and in Terminator two. And not just because I am a Terminator fanboy. Um, I really believe that Linda Hamilton did something for the female uh, uh, character that may have been done prior uh, to her appearance in the Terminator film, but man, oh man, from that performance. And then really it's the, it's the transition between the two films. So going into T2 and you see that total 180 of her character from the first film. And it's just, I was thinking across all the performances I've seen in all of his films, you know, there's some really, really good ones. And there were some ones that I really considered, but at the end of the day, I kept coming back to Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor because just, just, her performance in T2 is what sold me on it. This, this person who accepted her fate and, you know, really started preparing herself both physically. So she really got into great shape for that film, by the way, um, and mentally to accept, you know, what she knows is coming. And you really see that in T2 when she is, um, you know, escaping from the mental hospital or, um, when she first comes in contact with John Connor, her son. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe Cameron himself has actually even said this, that one of his favorite moments in that film is when they first hug each other in the car after they have escaped um, the clutches, oh, if you will, of the T-1000. Um, they hug each other, and John thinks that, you know, she is hugging him as a mother, yeah. but she's actually hugging him to check him for wounds, to make sure that he's not you know, injured or, or has, you know, sustained any kind of damage. Um, You know, that scene just uh, really drives home this, this real transition from T1 to T2. And, you know, when I was considering the top performance, it was really hard to beat the, the, the real kind of revolutionary performance that she delivered between those two films. So I think if it was just, you know, a one-off film in terms of her performance. So if if they had only made the Terminator, I think I might have had an easier time uh, deciding on another performance. But with that, with that second film, it's just, I think that's, I think that is the top performance in a James Cameron film. What's yours? Oh gosh, this is a great question. And uh, I actually was struggling with a lot of performances and I, I wound down to three and the three choices I left, I was left with one of them was in fact, Linda Hamilton in, I, I think I would say in particular Terminator two uh, for many of the reasons that you cited, but that wasn't my final choice. My other final okay. choice was Jamie Lee Curtis in true lies which I think was a, a really, uh, uh, really interesting performance in terms of scope and uh, where that character goes. I really love that performance too. So those are my runner, runner-ups, so to speak, or runners-up. But 
I think the the top performance for me in a James Cameron directed film is Sigourney Weaver in Aliens. I think that her performance in that film is extraordinary. It is truly extraordinary. And I don't just mean that in the context of how she develops her character from the first Alien film. There is a lot of that there in terms of character development and also the creation or the expansion of the alien world and the mythos and the, the universe that, has, that was, uh, the, the seeds were set, of course, in the Ridley Scott film, but then they were expanded uh, quite, uh, quite radically and in a great way, of course, by the James Cameron film. And I, of course, I think a lot of her performance has to do with the carryover of the Ripley character from the earlier Alien film, don't get me wrong. But if we're talking about her performance in Aliens, in isolation, as it were, I think there is so much there. There's so much warmth. There is so much uh, accessibility, directness, in particular, of course, with her relationship with Newt. Uh, which is the the key relationship in that film. I think without that relationship and had that relationship not worked so successfully as it did, the film, I think, would have not been as, as good as it is. And that is due in, in, in part, of course, to the great performance by Sigourney Weaver. She exudes a, a real uh, confidence and she is, uh, it, it, it flows very naturally from her performance. You know, when she has to take over the operations from the uh, very ill-equipped Gorman after the first uh, raid goes very unsuccessfully. And, you know, every, all the, the soldiers are starting to, to, to uh, fall. Uh, and, and uh, um, uh, you know, she over the reins and, and, and uh, assert herself. And she does so uh, very uh, coolly, but also with a lot of command of character, which is not out of place in how she has been set up in that film. And then just goes from there and then it, it shifts in tone uh, rather uh, seamlessly and, and quite brilliantly from these moments of real tenderness, uh, whether it be with her interactions with Newt or maybe with um, Hicks, perhaps, but also with her interactions with the other soldiers. Uh, she has a, a kind of toughness and uh, exudes authority. Um, and also she knows when to be, when to be mean, when to be uh, uh, nasty, you know, when it comes, especially with her dealings with the character Burke, of course. And then, uh, her, of course, her dealings with the, the alien menace and uh, the, the monsters and, and how that plays out towards the end into that really explosive, tremendous climax. And all through that, it's, the film is centered on her performance. I would also just applaud the, the great, great Bill Paxton, um, I don't know, you, you probably know this, of course, and, and as, as uh, I'm sure your audience does as well, but I forget what the documentary was, but do you remember that there was that, that interview, there was like a making of, of the film Aliens, and there were all these interviews with Gail Ann Hurd and, and Bill Paxson and, and uh, Michael Bean and, and others, but Bill Paxson was really great because he actually went out of his way to mention in one of those interview excerpts 
you know, you see, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, I, don't forget. It's easy, very easy to forget, but you have to remember that Sigourney Weaver was actually nominated for an Academy Award for her performance in Aliens. And a lot of people uh, forget that. And that's what he said in the interview, I think. And I, I really want to applaud Bill Paxton for that comment because it's really uh, uh, quite a great one. Uh, because it just goes to show, even in contemporary times, you know, what, the film was in 1986, is that right? Um, uh, even in the contemporary time when the film was released, uh, her performance did get a lot of critical attention, deservingly, deservedly so. And I think that attention, it, it, it's, it's well-founded and it, it still shows even to this day, a marvelous performance, I think. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And what's really... Uh... Um, something that I kind of really enjoyed about your runner-ups is that, and this is something that really is of um, a main focus when it comes to Cameron. He is someone who is able to uh, present not only really strong female characters, because I know that's sort of a, especially in 2019, um, but maybe not so much when he was making the films. Um, that's sort of a cliche now, this whole female empowerment, but it is something that is very important and it's something that is you, you can really see it in pretty much every single one of his films every single female main character is someone that he um because he does write all of his own films so or or at least co-writes and he writes them with um this 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 certain way of maybe they don't start out as being, you know, very strong or maybe the most uh, intelligent or, or whatever. But as the film progresses, they eventually will usually end up beating or uh, outliving whatever the, the male counterpart is. Um, and it's really interesting that you chose um, Linda Hamilton and Jamie Lee Curtis, but you can also look at uh, certain other ones I considered was Kate Winslet in Titanic. Oh, me too. Um, yes, me too. Yeah. Yeah. And again, another Academy Award nomination right there. Um, you know, it, it's just the way he writes his female characters. But I, I, I do have to say that uh, Sigourney Weaver is, is definitely a solid choice because um, yeah, it, it's also fascinating that it's, that transition again, that we both chose characters who went from one film into another film and that we're really focusing on the sequel where they are uh, truly developing and really kind of um, bringing to light that, that whole notion of whatever you saw in that first film, whatever you thought we were going to be, we're really not, we're going to be this. And, mm -hmm. Uh, it just stands out and, you know, he has a way with sequels anyway. I mean, he's just, the sequels he's made are some of the best sequels of all time. So um, yes, really interesting stuff, really interesting choices. So everybody listening as well. Um, I also invite you on social media to uh, reach out to uh, either myself or Daisuke, uh, but probably more so me. Um, don't, you know, spam him with messages or anything, but uh, kind of give us your breakdowns in terms of these topics. So, you know, let me know what your top performance in a James Cameron film is. I would love to hear. Um, so there's uh, mine, Linda Hamilton in specifically Terminator 2. 
and Daisuke's is uh, Sigourney Weaver in Aliens. Um, two really solid choices, I think. Not to pat ourselves on the back here, but uh, <laughs> um, so kind of segueing into the next topic, which I think will stay in line with the performers. I think I want to uh, kind of uh, knock those two out first. I uh, wanted to determine dice game. What is the best recurring performer? And uh, sort of the criteria for this one is it can be in, you know, a female, it can be a male. Um, they just had to have been cast in at least two James Cameron films. That was the criteria. If they were in at least two of his films, they could be considered for the best recurring performer. Um, do you want me to go again for this one? Please. Yes. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Okay. Um, you actually, uh, took it right out of my mouth when you were talking about Bill Paxton. Um, again, when I was considering this and really going through who he has, like who he has consistently worked with between films, um, I don't think there's anyone better than, than Bill Paxton. And, if you look at where he started with Cameron in the Terminator, he was uh, one of the three punks at the beginning of the film that uh, Arnold comes in contact with. Mm. Um, then of course you're segueing into his next role, which is in aliens, uh, arguably his most iconic uh, James Cameron role, possibly even his most iconic role ever. Um, and then, of course, after Aliens, there's a little bit of a, you would think that he might have been cast in The Abyss, but he wasn't. Mm. Um, there's a couple roles in there I actually would have considered Bill Paxton was perfect for. Mm. Um, but then, of course, you get his incredible, and, and honestly, I think this is like the role that sold me on him being the best recurring performer, because he was okay in The Terminator. He was just, you know, a couple lines, and then he was off. Mm. Um and then, of course, going into Aliens, he was just, in, you know, so incredible, so, so just over the top, but really, really that, you know, comedic relief that we all needed in that film. Mm. Um, but then you get into True Lies and talk about a, talk about a performance um, where he is so Bill Paxton always had a way of either making you love him or hate him in a film. He was one of those performers that really could do that. You know, some people struggle with that, but Bill Paxton, he could just in a couple minutes bring you on board or keep you as far away from getting on board as possible. And in true lies, he kept me as far away from getting on board with him as possible. <laughs> he is so detestable in that film. Yeah. He is so, Oh, he just, every scene he's in, I just want to reach through the screen and just, you know, slap him a couple times because he, but, but that's, you know, talking on the strengths of him as someone who was really good with drama, but someone who was also really good with comedy. And he just, he stood out to me so much. One of my earliest memories of watching True Lies um, was watching it on television and watching his scenes in particular where of course, it's for TV, so they're edited. And over here in America, I don't know if it's the same over there in Tokyo, but they don't like we don't have the best uh, TV edits when it comes to like taking out certain words or taking out you know suggestive things. And um, 
certain lines he would say in True Lies always stood out to me as odd because of the way that like the TV edit edited them. Um, and of course, so then I would go back in my later years, I, I would revisit True Lies and he just, he like, it blew me away because I was getting ready to hear this particular line said this way. And then I heard it the original way that it was intended. Mm-hmm. And I would just, you know, hit the floor laughing. But at the same time, I'd be like, man, you suck as a character. <laughs> but, you know, it, 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 it was just such a fun movie. And then, of course, the last film uh, that he was a part of, and it's um, really the one that I remember seeing Bill Paxton in first is Titanic as um, Brock Lovett, who is looking for the, um, uh, the, the jewel that uh, Kate Winslet wore. And those four films, he was only in four of uh, James Cameron's films. And of course he has passed away, but um, those four films that he was in are just, and of course I think the Terminator is in my top five, True Lies is in my top five, and Titanic is in my top five. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, why I chose Bill Paxton. It was it, it was a real easy choice, and uh, of course, there's a bunch we could consider here. So, um, what is the one that you landed on? I'm really really curious. Was it Bill Paxton or was it someone else? Oh well, just a great choice. I really want to applaud you for that, and I agree with you wholeheartedly about Bill Paxton's performances and the way his range is really tested from film to film to film to film. Yeah. So that's great. My choice, actually, Bill Paxton was a runner-up for me. Uh, it was a really hard choice between Bill Paxton and my eventual choice here. But uh, with Bill Paxton, as great as I think he is, and he, I think for me, it had to go to Michael Bean. Okay, And I rely on the strength of his performances in, what is it? It's The Terminator and Aliens and um, The Abyss. Yes. Right. And I think when when I look at him in The Terminator, I see a performance and I realize that that film is is as much as the, the, the whole Terminator iconography rests on uh, Arnold's shoulders and on Linda Hamilton's shoulders as based on the, that, the, the, the strength of that film. It's also Kyle Reese as well. And he therefore forms, a, in an interesting way, a kind of triangle, right? It's the key triangular relationship. Um, and it has Im- strong, it has great implications that you know better than, than anyone else, I think, in the Terminator universe. But, uh, but th- his performance is, it has to be strong and it has to be tender and it, and it provides a, almost kind of a surprise, a little bit of a twist, if you will, in terms of, of his motivations uh, with uh, regard to the character Sarah Connor, as you know, as the film uh, leads to its conclusion. And so he brings to it a, a strength and also sensitivity, which is great. And then we go from that to his performance as um, in Aliens, right? Hicks. Uh, he's, he's sort of the one that uh, uh, Ripley uh, tends to rely on in this uh, group of soldiers, and he also relies upon her. Uh, 
Uh, he has a, a kind of a, 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 an innate intelligence, although his seemingly low rank uh, might not necessarily show that immediately. Uh, but he certainly has a, a, a presence of mind and he knows when to act when he does. Um, and uh, I, I think there's a certain strength of character there. And I really love how uh, it's it's almost similar to his performance in The Terminator. But on, on the other hand, it's a little bit different because I think the the potential love story between Hicks and Ripley is, is played down uh, in favor of of something I think more interesting between the two of the two of them, which I think is an, an interesting uh, difference or uh, it, it's, it's a nice comparison point uh, with his performance in the Terminator and his relationship or uh, uh, Kyle Reese's relationship with Sarah Connor in that film. But then you go from those two films to the abyss and it's almost like it's almost mirroring maybe your reaction to Bill Paxton and the way he goes from being a very likable character um, in, let's say, his most prominent role, Aliens, to True Lies. It's almost like a, a complete 180 in many respects. The same is true for Michael Bean and, and the characters uh, that he plays in Terminator and Aliens. And then we go to The Abyss. My goodness, this is a, 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 almost a different side of this performance, uh, this actor. Um, that mustache alone deserves kudos. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, and I truly mean that. But it's, it's, a, it's a frightening performance. It's a really vile performance. And uh, we follow that character and it's, it's suspenseful. It's scary. I mean, he's one of the main, he's one of the sources of tension in that film. Uh, and it, it's, it's great. And, and he, it, it's, it's volcanic almost. And so uh, the, and it's just, he, he forms, I think for me anyway, a, such a, a critical role in that film and the way in which I react to that film. And I really love the abyss. Uh, there are certain issues I have with the film, but I really love the abyss. And part of my, the reason why I do is because of, of Michael Bean's performance. And so, yes. So I think for me, uh, best recurring actor or actress has to go to Michael Bean. Beautiful. I love it. Um, I do have a question where, um, was, of course, I think the one that, uh, um, a lot of people would maybe gravitate to. Um, and, you know, really any answer is valid, but did, uh, did Arnold come into play in terms of your consideration or where do you fall in line with his uh, three collaborations with Cameron? Oh, actually he did. He, I did consider him and I actually was thinking about naming him. I think he would have been, he and, um, uh, oh gosh, uh, I'm embarrassed to say it's um, uh, Jeanette Goldstein, Yes. Yes. Uh, he, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jeanette Goldstein were the other runners up that I was considering, and I would have. I think Arnold was. I, you know, I think his performances in uh, Terminator, Terminator Two. I, I, well, first of all, his performances just between those two films alone are so starkly different, and he makes certain choices in the first film, and he makes other choices in the second film that are so striking. 
I think uh, I don't think enough people give him credit for the types of choices that he makes. I don't know if, if it was based on his own instincts or maybe he was directed to do so. I don't know the details are, but whatever the, the case may be, uh, the, the, the results on screen are undeniable. It's, it's, it's really a great, great performance. And he uses what he has to the, to a great, um, uh, to uh, his advantage. And then he turns it on a dime in a very interesting way, a seemingly almost, um, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, um, uh, breathless uh, spy type of turn with true lies, uh, which is also uh, centered on a, a kind of romantic or a, a core relationship that he, he must have with uh, uh, the Jamie Lee Curtis character, and, uh, Helen. And so this is, I think, a very... Uh, yeah, Arnold's performances, I think, are very worthy of uh, this uh, this question of best recurring actor or actress, for sure, for sure. Yeah, me too, me too. And and um, the like the other uh, real quick thing I wanted to add here was, uh, did you see Michael Bean's uh, cameo in T two? Are you uh, oh, yes. familiar with that? Yes, yes. I, I should have mentioned that. Yes, I when I mentioned my performance, I didn't. I don't necessarily cons- I don't necessarily think automatically of the extended cut. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yes. the special, the special edition. edition. Yeah. Yes, yes, the, where the, his scenes uh with uh, uh with Sarah Connor are added. I I don't necessarily count that because I I know the the original theatrical cut most uh most intimately. Uh but but yes, I I do. Yes, I should mention that as well and um Yes, I, I do see that. I mean, it, it is a very small part of that extended cut, right? The special uh, edition. Yeah, it's mm. just uh, essentially one scene. Yes, it is. And so in many respects, I, I think it could be seen maybe as an extension of his performance in, in Terminator, uh, in the first Terminator. But also, yes, thank you for reminding me. It does have a kind of, how should I put it? Um, pardon me for making uh, references to other films, but it does have a similar vibe, if you will. I don't know if you know the the Godfather films, but, uh, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail into the plot details of the Godfather, lest I spoil it for any of your viewers or listeners who haven't seen it. But uh, there is a particular appearance by um, uh, a character there uh, in the second film, and he makes a quick cameo appearance uh, near the end. And it, 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 I think uh, uh, Michael Bean's pre- uh, appearance in the, the special edition of, the, of Terminator 2 has the same feel. It's almost like we're welcoming back old friends, even though the, the situation in the extended version of Terminator 2 is, is I think, a mere fragment and almost like a, a hallucination or a dream, if you will. Um, but still, it's almost like welcoming back an old friend. And so there is a kind of reassurance uh, that is there. And also it helps to, uh, again, show another aspect of the motivation of the Sarah Connor character at that particular point in time in, in, in Terminator 2. So, yes, yes, it's, it's key. I, thank you very much for reminding me of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that, uh, you know, even myself, I find myself, if I'm, you know, thinking about, you know, what films a certain person has been in and I come across Michael Bean, especially because I was actually really fortunate enough to get Michael Bean to come on the podcast. And um, that episode as of right now has not been released yet. It's going to be the 50th episode. Um, But, you know, 
when I was talking to Michael Bean, he was just, he was so, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're talking to someone who you have seen on screen. And I, you know, during that conversation, I kind of just remembered, I was like, Oh wait, you were, yeah, you, you kind of were in T2, but you're not really in the Canon version of T2, the special edition. um, A lot of fans, self-included, we don't really, consider that special edition canon so to speak um which obviously opens up a whole other door in, in terms of you know how do you view a special edition and but that's for another day but um just wanted to see if you had seen that particular scene because it's uh it's it's definitely a small moment in the film but it's definitely one of those those moments that um for better or for worse really uh really brought back that that emotional connection from the first film um and uh yeah he's very just uh you know that that particular scene he's 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 acting in such a way that is very because it is a dream so he's very kind of one note and emotionless essentially and but it is a nice performance so that's a solid choice i mean especially considering that uh michael bean has been in those three you know consecutive films back to back to back um yeah he was a solid choice as well someone you know that we could if we were to have done this a couple years on we could have considered kate winslet she's coming back for avatar 2 um which will be her first return with cameron uh because i i recall seeing her say something along the lines that she would never based on her experience on Titanic, she would never work with James Cameron ever again. Mm. Um, and it's interesting now that she is uh, once again in a sequel to Avatar and she's doing stuff that involves water again. Mm. Um, just just really interesting stuff there. So those are our choices, everybody. Uh, like I said, let me know who is your best or top recurring performer in a James Cameron film. Um, Going along here, now we're going to get into some really interesting stuff. Some, uh, I think we're going to have really differing opinions here. Uh, we will go with his best movie, his absolute number one best movie. And again, like pretty much everything we've talked about here, this is all subjective. So you guys listening might not necessarily agree with us, and that's perfectly fine. Um, but this is the film, when I was you know, telling Daisuke about this, this is the film that that really stands out to us. It did the most for us, whether it was emotional, whether it was just the most fun we had at a movie, whatever, whatever criteria, it's the best James Cameron film. Um, now that we know the kind of flow that we're going here, I, I, I kind of want to do a twist here and I want you to go first, Dice Game. Okay. Thank you. So uh, what I think Cameron's uh, best film is, uh, this was very easy for me. Terminator 2. Terminator 2 Judgment Day. This is Cameron's best film. And it speaks to me so, so strongly. Um, I don't think I can add anything further to the conversation uh, because I think many other people have, have uh, lauded its, uh, its strengths much better than I could ever uh, hope to. Uh, so uh, let me just add that I too feel the same way. Uh, it's exciting. It's emotional. It's riveting. Uh, from the word go, it, it's it's just you can't take your eyes off the screen. Everything about it is is jam packed with meaning, 
with excitement, with suspense. There is uh, uh, special effects that are just still to this day to behold. But let me just add a particular detail and please pay for the indulgence. But I think of all the things that I love about Terminator 2, I think I love most just the way in which little details tend to stick out in the memory. The one that I will never forget, and there's so many. Uh, I mean, I, I always laugh out loud when, when uh, Arnold says, you know, uh, I need a vacation. Or, um, uh, you know, I, I love the moment where um, uh, Sarah, you know, you talked about Lyndall Hamilton. I think one of my favorite moments in, that, in any film is when she is having a, kind of almost a breakdown. Uh, just, you know, when she attacks uh, the Dyson household. Right in a very frightening scene, um, and but I, I loved all the little details in that film. But um, well, one of the details I will I just just re- remember since I first saw the film was: Do you remember where um, Linda Hamilton is attacking the Dyson house that she breaks in, and she's about to kill, and, and Dyson is is on the floor, he's shot up, wounded. And the family's just freaking out, right? Because here's this, this stranger about to kill the father, right? I, I, I don't know if you remember. You probably, you obviously, I think you do. But I love that moment where the little boy, his son, he goes in front of his dad and he says, don't hurt my dad. Don't, don't hurt my dad. And I just remember thinking about that moment. I thought, gosh, that is such a, that is such a great moment. It's, it, it's, it's the sort of thing like like a little kid would do because he loves his dad. He also sees action films, so he's probably patterning his his uh, behavior after something he saw in a movie or something. It's, it's just a little moment like that that I think is an example of why that film as a whole package works, not just as an action film, although it works great as an action film, not just as a, a kind of, um, of, a, of a commentary, uh, with its uh, a commentary on uh, um, uh, uh, military technological development um, and the like, but also just those little details that make the film even more accessible because they are human moments. Uh, yeah, Terminator 2, by far for me, yes. Beautiful, beautiful. And that moment, yes, that moment is... <laughs> um, Don't hurt my dad. I, I love that moment. That's a great moment, yeah. It's, yeah, it it is great, and it, it's really that one-two punch. So you have that moment where uh, Danny comes over and and you know does what he said, you know does what you said he does, and then you follow that up with with Linda Hamilton, yes. and this takes me back to the to the best performance. You, it follows up with, and um, I believe I stand to be corrected, but I believe this was a moment that Linda Hamilton herself crafted during the the filming process of that scene where she realizes what is happening and she just does a real quiet shh Uh, and you know she's yes she's backing up and she realizes what she's about to do and you don't know what she's feeling whether or not she's um um uh appalled at the uh, you know, action about to take place that she was about to pull the trigger on a father and some person that really is unknowingly doing something, doing something, you know, with the best intentions or 
whether or not she's appalled at herself that she's gotten to this point, um, you know, you can really interpret it a bunch of different ways. That whole scene is incredible. Um, Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. It, it really is hard when, when you, when you go to a person and you say, Hey, the best James Cameron film. Um, I think a, a lot of people, and it's not a bad thing. I think a lot of people will say Terminator two. And, um, it's, it's, it was really tricky for me to decipher because, um, Terminator two, the Terminator out, out of the two Terminator films, the Terminator is my favorite. Um, but, when I was considering the, like the one film that I think James Cameron, when he is no longer with us, like when his time has come and gone and we're looking back on his career, the film that I think is really going to be the, the, the one that if you were to frame it and put it on a wall and say, this I think best represents James Cameron himself. I have to put my love for Terminator. I have to put it aside for just a second and I have to zero in on Titanic. Mm. And, and, uh, you know, obviously you, you can focus on the, you know, all the accolades that film has, um, you know, tied, I think what it's uh, 14 nominations at the Academy Awards, 11 wins, you know, accolades aside, because I really tend to focus and try to look past accolades. Um, that film and, and and box office as well that film is i think the absolute best representation of james cameron because he himself is uh credited as the director as the sole writer he produced it he is one of the film editors you know it's one of those rare films that he is actually credited as a film editor on um i believe it's only titanic and avatar um you could really tell that this was something that he was so invested in. This was essentially uh, for uh, 12 years, the last film that he ever, like the last feature length fictional film he made between Titanic and Avatar, this thing, he poured his, you know, every little bit of uh, creativity into. And it's, I think the best representation because you have literally uh, two halves of a film. You have, the first half, which is a very human story. Yes, it's a very uh, familiar story. Um, you know, it is essentially Romeo and Juliet, but on a ship. But you have a very human story. You have these characters that you just instantly fall in love with. The same way that Jack and Rose fall in love, you fall in love with not only them, but you fall in love with essentially every single character, even Billy Zane's character. Um, in a weird kind of way, you're like, why do I, why, why do I kind of like this guy, but I don't like this guy. Like he probably had some really good intentions and maybe he had a bad upbringing, but what's going on here. Um, you have that first half that is just such a well-crafted kind of melodrama. Um, and then of course, you know, Cameron is an action guy first and foremost. I, I, I truly stand by that. He's a, he's an action director. Um, and talk about a film that still to this day, yes, the T2 special effects hold up and hold up extremely well, but so do the Titanic. And that's only uh, six years later uh, that Titanic comes out. The sinking of the Titanic is 
um, I still think it's the most accurate representation of the of the sinking up to that point, and maybe even still to this day. Um, you know, displaying the the ship breaking in two. Yes, yes, you, that's right. Yes, you know, yeah, you really, you really feel it, and 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 this is something that because you are uh, uh, such a Criterion expert, and I wanted to get your opinion on this. I have not seen a night to remember. Um, I do want to, though, considering my love for Cameron and, and, and how the name James Cameron is so closely associated with the Titanic. Um, I, I really am curious how these two films differ in terms of their presentation. So that is my choice. Having said all of that, uh, can you comment on just, you know, for however long you want, what, like, what are the stark differences between a night to remember and Titanic? Oh, I think the, the, the focus on characters is a little bit different. I think primarily because of the Jack and Rose story that you alluded to in the, the Cameron work, whereas in the, uh, in a night to remember, it's a little bit more spread out. Uh, in terms of the focus on character. And then we follow these pockets of character as the, the ship is sinking. Um, right, the, the whole thing about the, the hull breaking in the camera work, that's not featured in the Night to Remembers, right? And I think that was, that was kind of a, a revolutionary thing, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, in terms of uh, Cameron's own, uh, or, or what he was, how he's trying to depict the, the sinking of the ship. Am I correct? Yeah, uh, I, uh, because it wasn't depicted I, in a night to remember that way, as far as I recall that film. So, yeah, or really any, I think, yes, because yes. Uh, there were a couple other adaptations of that sinking, and I think every single one of them presented it as it it just kind of went upright and then just went down. Um, but yeah, you really start to think about it, and uh, a lot of people agree that that is most likely what clearly did happen, where it was starting to sink it you know it started going up sort of at a at a real uh, real interesting angle and then of course that weight and pressure just and, and, and when you watch that in 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 his film you feel it you know because it's 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 that beautiful combination yes. of uh cgi but then of course they used miniatures they they you know really had the entire arsenal um on display there and it's just uh, it's just his most incredible work. I think it is his masterwork as much as I love Terminator. Um, I strongly believe that when he is no longer on earth, that is the film that is going to be someone down the road, 50, 60, 70 years. You know, who's James Cameron? Mm. Watch and you'll get a pretty good idea of who James Cameron is. And I think it'll still hold up. You know, that's one thing that James Cameron and curious to see if you agree a lot of his films yeah they date in certain aspects but he is someone who is a pretty consistent director when it comes to making sure that his films don't age that poorly oh i agree i i completely agree with you about that i mean i, I would say the, the the ones that i think don't uh, i think you know the, the um uh, you know, of course, everyone has has had a uh, had a go at the some of the effects in the first Terminator film, of course. Okay, so we know about those, but uh, that was still very early, um, and I think there there's a certain charm to those effects. 
but I, I would say, yes, starting from Aliens, uh, that film is it still holds up so well. Uh, the Abyss, I was just watching that again the other day. I was so sh- I was amazed at how well those those effects still hold up today. And then we just go uh, down the line. And then, yes, Titanic, I completely agree with you in terms of the way it looks even now. Uh, really quite splendid. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's just, I don't know what he, I don't know. He has something that a lot of filmmakers just don't have when it comes to how he puts his film together. Like maybe it's the crew he assemble. I, I don't know what it is, but he has that special formula and uh, maybe it's because he's so selective. I don't know, but um, yeah, that's just uh, something that I really wanted to, uh, to see if you agreed with, but it's, it's kind of fascinating to hear the, the differences between a night to remember and, and Titanic. Um, yeah. I would recommend that you take, take a look at a night to remember. It might be an interesting uh, topic for a future podcast. Who knows? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, what do you like? Like, what is your preferred telling of the Titanic story between the two films? Oh, uh, James Cameron's Titanic. I, I really do like that. I, I do have certain, I do have certain issues with the film. Uh, I can't deny that. And I think my issues with the film uh, lie uh, in the, the first half of the film or the first component of the, of the story, namely the Jack and Rose uh, story. Not all of it, but there are certain aspects. You know, it is a very, uh, I think you mentioned it's a kind of simply told tale. Um, uh, I, I don't have anything necessarily wrong with that per se. It's just... Uh, I think um, if I had to choose which component of the film that I really found more engaging, and I think it would be the the actual ship part of it itself. Although I think the the two characters are really very endearing. Don't get me wrong. Okay, interesting. So, but out of the two films, you you definitely lean more towards Titanic. Oh, yes, for sure. Although, again, I do recommend that you check out A Night to Remember. It is a very uh, great watch. Okay, and everybody listening as well, if you're sort of like me where uh, you've only seen Titanic, but uh, definitely strongly uh, based off of Daisuke's recommendation and and just the fact that it's in the Criterion Collection, you know, definitely seek it out. And uh, I know I will come the uh the next sale because uh that's something i definitely like to participate in oh, those two sales yeah. that happen and, throughout the year and incidentally i i don't mean to interrupt you pardon me for interrupting but it would be great to see james cameron film in the criterion collection i mean that's not i understand that it's just because a film is in the criterion it makes it greater i i you know of course that's not the case you know the criterion collection is just a, a a series of films that have been selected by a group of people to be released on the label. Of course, I, I appreciate that, but still there is a certain kind of, of, I don't know, uh, for better or for worse, a kind of aura, if you will, associated with being released on the Criterion Collection. As of now, Cameron's, none of Cameron's films has been released, but it would be so great, I think, to see uh, a, a James Cameron film released on the Criterion Collection one of these days. I totally agree, and I was actually going to, when we finish up here with the topics, I was just going to briefly uh, touch on that with you, considering that, you know, whether you agree or not uh, with with this uh, uh, statement, I do think of you as one of, like, the go-to people for talking about specifically the Criterion Collection because of your just, uh, you know, real passion for it, so... Um, 
I did want to talk to you just uh, for just a few minutes on that. So um, those are our answers. So we have uh, uh, Terminator 2 and Titanic. Um, now we are going to, from best movie, we are going to go to something that is uh, going to spark another little bit of a debate here. Cameron's most unique movie. So this one did not have to necessarily fall into, you know, something that we consider, you know, great. You know, if either one of us believes that he has a weak film, uh, that's totally fine. You know, this weak film could still be considered because maybe it's his most unique film. Um, so uh, for this one, there was a couple that I considered. Um, uh, and this is probably going to be the only time that you will hear me talk about this in this entire discussion. Uh, <laughs> I think I know what you're going to say. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, hands down, James Cameron's most unique film, in my opinion, is Piranha. Hmm. Um, and like I said at the beginning of this episode, this is a film that you can really, you know, go back and forth with whether or not this even counts as a James Cameron film. Um, you know, there's those stories where he was essentially hired on for just a couple of weeks and got fired halfway through. This was a Roger Corman performance, uh, not performance. This was a, a production. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, I think that I, I stand to be corrected again, but that film I think had, at least three people in the director's chair, if not more. Um, it is funny though, that James Cameron got the official like final directorial credit for it. Uh, and Cameron himself does not even consider it his uh, theatrical debut. He considers the Terminator his theatrical debut, but for the sake of this argument and for the sake of this debate, we did consider Piranha. So I have to say, if we are considering it in those terms, it is his most unique film because of the quality of the film. Um, hmm. It just stands out like a sore thumb when it comes to what we think of James Cameron. And then you watch that film. And of course, this is early on in his career. So uh, can definitely point towards that. But again, this was just a troubled production to begin with. Um, it's his most unique film. Just, just alone, the quality of the film makes it stand out as his most unique piece in his entire body of work for no other reason. That's literally it. It's just, it's the one truly awful film. I don't think he has a bad film except for Piranha, which is also his most unique. Hmm. So that's, that's my choice. No, great choice. I, I actually had Piranha Part 2 The Spawning as, as a runner-up. Okay. <laughs> and um, yes, I was thinking about this, the meaning of this word unique, you know, something unlike anything. And so I thought about Perona Part 2 spawning. Uh, great score, by the way. I, I sometimes whistle the, the tune on the way to work. But, um, <laughs> but uh, that, all that aside, um, uh, I, I didn't choose Perona uh, Part 2 spawning because... There are arguably, I would say, certain aspects of that film that I think can be seen to be links, maybe thematically at best, perhaps, to some of Cameron's other 
shall we say, for lack of a better word, genre efforts. So I would say that there could be some linkages that could be said to be made with, let's say, the Terminator um, or even Aliens. Uh, or even I would even go so far to say Avatar. Um, but uh, so on that basis, I didn't name it as what I thought was his most unique film. I instead chose Titanic. I think Titanic is James Cameron's most unique film in the following sense. I think that um, if we look at his, his body of work, I think this is his, the, his only film where we're talking about a, a kind of real-life event, right? A historical event, something that actually happened. And so a lot of the, the, um, uh, the reputation behind the, the Cameron work Titanic stems in, in large part to the reputation that he had for detail and historical accuracy and all that. I think that could be said to be part of his directorial style. I mean, he is known for being uh, quite demanding in terms of the, the high quality that he demands. And I think rightly so, because uh, that's what he is hired to do. He's hired to create um, uh, enthralling works, right? So, but Titanic, is, I think, stands apart from the rest of his filmography because it's based on a historical event. And because, therefore, I think the focus of his attention is on history and on the details of history. And I think on that basis, Titanic becomes a very fascinating work to behold. And it becomes my answer for the question, what is his most unique? Okay. I honestly, I thought, uh, because this was my runner up and and, and I thought this is where you were going to go with it. I honestly considered, um, for a moment, true lies as his most unique film, Mm. because, when you like, really start to like analyze it, it's that one film that, um, you know, Piranha, because when I actually consider Cameron, I, I, I don't truly consider Piranha. So I start with Terminator and go forward. But when I'm considering those films, I always somehow seem to forget about true lies. It's the, it, it's that one film that eludes me. And, um, uh, only, when I'm thinking about it later on, do I go, Oh wait, hold on. He did a film called true lies. It's that one film that uh, is arguably his, his smallest in terms of scope Mm. and uh, uh, you know, what it actually does in that story. um, The themes and whatnot. uh, And and the fact that it's the most comedic he's ever been. Um, Usually he's, he, he is a very serious kind of, uh, director in terms of his subject matter. Um, it's that one film that stands out as like, when you watch it, you have a hard time believing that Cameron is the guy calling the shots on that film. Um, and that's where I thought you were going to go with when you were talking about how you considered Piranha, but then of course, you know, it tied into maybe other elements and I was thinking, Oh, okay. So then true lies did not think Titanic was going to pop up there, but yeah, Mm. you know, it's, it's a great argument because it is that one film that is a uh, quote unquote true story. All of his other things are total works of fiction. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that that's a solid choice. Uh, it's, it's definitely a much more unique film in terms of uh, quality compared to Piranha part two. I'll tell you that much. Uh, 
And I think your your approach is very interesting because I, you're you're looking at it in terms of let's say uh, a standard of quality, which I think is a very valid way of looking at it. And also, you're looking at it in terms of a, of let's say a tone. You you point to the comedic tone or or the the, the scope of the film of of uh, of True Lies compared with others' work. So I think it's really fascinating because it depends on your perspective and how you view the question. Uh, and it leads to different answers. So I, I think maybe your audience, too, will have some very interesting uh, uh, answers to make uh, with this question. Very much so, yeah. Very much so. Um, yeah, you guys can interpret that however you want. What is the most unique James Cameron film? Uh, can't wait to hear your guys' answers. So that is that topic covered. We only have two left. And... Um, now we're really going to focus because we, we started with the performances, then we went to the films. Now we're really going to zero in on Cameron himself, um, the guy as a whole. So this one is going to be, what is James Cameron's better decade? Okay. Um, now, obviously, when you're considering that, there's really only two options you have. You have either, because he started working as a director... Uh, as a feature-length director in the 80s uh, and onward. You can only consider the 80s and the 90s because the 2000s, he only has one film in there. And then this decade that we are in, by the time it ends, he'll have zero films. Um, so he is a very selective director, but we are considering either the 80s or the 90s. And uh, for this one, I'm going to hand it over to Daisuke to see what he considers the better decade for Cameron this was such a tough question my friend to answer I was going back and forth and I actually was going back and forth uh, up, up to about a minute ago actually so uh, it's really tough but if you ask me right now at this very point in time what I think is the better decade for his films the 80s or the 90s right now my answer is the 80s right now is the 80s um he uh, creates there there is a, a an urgency in his 80s work there is a, a an almost um, a rough and tumble feel to his 80s work you, you understand that he is uh, a filmmaker that is still uh in his uh you know it is earlier in his career so he is younger uh, maybe you can sense that he might be a little bit hungrier, although uh, don't get me wrong. I think his later works still have a, a great ambition uh, and he, he never lets us down when, in terms of his own ambition. Uh, but there is something of, a, of, a, of an earnestness. Uh, well, I, I mean, earnestness isn't, isn't the best word, but um, I hope you understand what I'm trying to get at it. There's, there's something of a, of a, of a, of a certain uh, uh, quality uh, he's coming from uh, a place where he still has to prove himself in many respects. And he does so quite extraordinarily. Um, and then it shows in the body of work that he, he has produced in that decade. Um, and so, uh, yes, uh, again, it, it, it was very difficult for me. Uh, but at this point in time, my answer is the 1980s. Okay. All right. Um for me, it's uh, the the other hmm. possible choice here, uh, the 90s. And um, after I reveal my answer, I'm just going to piggyback off of what you said with the 80s. But, um, you know, the 90s is 
what you kind of said with your answer, you know, you had this guy who was starting out and uh, for our for our debate here, we're also including Piranha. So in the 80s, you have Piranha included in that. Um, and then, of course, you get into the Terminator, you get into uh, Aliens, and those are very strong films. Those are very, very strong films. Um, and then you get to The Abyss, and uh, if I yeah. were to rank my... If I were to rank my Cameron films, uh, Aliens and The Abyss are the two that are not included in the top five because he has seven. So the two that are excluded from my top five are Aliens and The Abyss. Um, I actually consider The Abyss his weakest effort. Um, still a really good movie, but it's one that I feel is you know, definitely something that he was very interested in because it, you know, predates what he did obviously later on with the ocean exploring and something that he actually really loves to do. Um, but certain elements of that film, I think are kind of uninspired. I think are, uh, you know, I, after I finished viewing it, I said that that was essentially, I believe James Cameron's uh, close encounters of the third kind. Um, so, you know, I feel like it's his most uninspired film. Um, it might be his most personal film. I don't know. But for me, it's his most uninspired. You look mm. at the 90s, you look at the 90s and you have Terminator 2, True Lies and Titanic, uh, where, you know, at the beginning of the decade, he revolutionizes uh, CGI, but he also revolutionizes uh, the idea that, you know, a sequel can, you know, still be really good. Cameron is the go-to sequel guy, which is why I have so much faith in Avatar too. But, um, you know, he is someone who, with his sequels, he just flips it and progresses it a hundred times more than he did with the original film. So you look at Terminator 2 and you have that going for it. You look at True Lies and you have him really stepping out of his comfort zone. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe uh, just putting his feet in the water of like the action comedy. And he really successfully does that. And then for the 90s capper, he sweeps the Oscars. Again, I try to look past accolades, but for this argument, he sweeps the Oscars, makes history with the biggest film of all time, and solidifies himself as what he yelled at at the Oscars, the king of the world. At that time in the 90s, James Cameron was the king of the world. He was the most powerful director, arguably, on the planet. And the 90s is, I definitely think, his better decade. But of course, this is all subjective. But if it wasn't for The Abyss, I think I might have had a tougher time figuring this one out. But when I was thinking of the better decade, I, I really looked at Piranha. I really looked at The Abyss. And despite the fact that The Terminator is my favorite Cameron film, my favorite film of all time, it was very easy for me to go. The 90s, I think, is his better decade. But um that's our answers. You know, you guys can let us know. Uh, it, it, you know, it's a real debate going back and forth. You could say that, you know, he has his genre classics in the eighties. Um, you know, some people don't love Titanic. Some people actually, you know, really like to hate on Titanic. So that might be an easy way for people to go about choosing this one, but that's that. Um, the last one, this one, I'm really curious to know what you think of uh, Cameron as a whole, Daisuke, because we are asking 
James Cameron as a director, as a filmmaker, mm. is he underrated, overrated, or is he perfectly rated? Is he right in the middle? Is he exactly where he should be when it comes to considering him as a filmmaker? Mm. Um, what is your answer, Daisuke? It's uh, a very tough question to answer again. It's a really great one. Um, it really depends on one's perspective, I think. And uh, I'll say it like this. I mean, as a kind of action adventure film director, just to put it in very bland, generic terms. I'm, of course, he's much more than that, don't get me wrong. But as a kind of a, a director of these thrilling entertainments, sure, he's, he's top of the game, top of the class. And even now, um, it's very easy, I think, to uh, sort of, uh, maybe, uh, maybe hate is a strong word, but you know what I mean. It, it's very easy to uh, uh, to say, oh, you know, what, Avatar two, the sequels aren't going to do well. You know, we have to wait and see. You know, he's always been uh, discounted before, and look where that's taken us with Titanic and then with Avatar. Um, so uh, it, it's never a, a good idea to bet against uh, James Cameron before the film has been released. So. Um, uh, so in that sense, I think in terms of his, his, uh, his, his, uh, record, uh, as a, a producer and director of uh, action adventure entertainments, I mean, he's top of the class, top of the line, but if we were to look at him in terms of the critical consensus, is he a name that's considered, uh, or is he a name that's mentioned in the same conversation as other great contemporary filmmakers? Uh, no, I don't think so, at least not in my experience. I mean, the debate, of course, is, I mean, is he as great as, say, Stanley Kubrick? Or is he as great as, I mean, you made the comparison in one of your earlier episodes about George Lucas. Um, or is he as great as some other uh, masters of the craft? Um, I mean, another uh, director that comes to mind in terms of great spectacle, grand entertainments would be someone like uh, David Lean, for instance, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, for example, um, uh, Stanley Kubrick as well, 2001. Uh, I mean, you mentioned The Abyss and the connections with Close Encounters. I would actually say that there is also a deep connection with 2001 A Space Odyssey. And uh, I actually like The Abyss, except for the ending. I really don't like the ending of The Abyss, but I like everything up to the ending. But there is a, a certain, I think, uh, you know, whether or not one agrees uh, whether or not you know how one answers the question is a different point entirely, but I think it's it's certainly a, a possibility to say that, oh, Cameron could definitely be in the conversation. You know, is he as good as Stanley Kubrick? Are they comparable as filmmakers? Um, depending on how you know how you answer the question is, of course, your choice, and it's subjective, of course. But my point is that his name doesn't necessarily appear in those sorts of conversations, and if that consensus, or at least my, my take on that consensus is indeed accurate, then it, I would say that he is, uh, in terms of uh, critical appreciation, very underrated. And uh, maybe time will tell. Maybe it's still early days yet because he is still, quote unquote, active in terms of his uh, activity as a filmmaker and a director. So maybe it'll take some time before uh, the critical praise will start coming to him uh, in a way that will solidify or cement his legacy 
uh, for uh, you know uh, decades and and uh, centuries and and hopefully millennia. But um, I, I I don't know if I'm making sense, but hopefully you, you see maybe you see where I'm trying to get at um, and say that I, I, on the one hand, yes, I think he is is very very well appreciated, but on the other hand, I think he is uh, underrated. Uh, at the very least, I think he deserves at least mentions, more mentions in terms of, of uh, uh, critical appraisal uh, than my sense is at the moment. But I don't know. What do you think? Uh, well, this is, this is a, a beautiful capper for this uh, particular discussion because uh, this is the one time that you and I have basically hit the nail right on the head in terms of our uh, coming to a, an agreement. <laughs> I do believe that yeah, I do believe James Cameron um, is underrated for everything that you just said, plus the fact that I think what's unfortunate with James Cameron is he, because for a very long time, he had uh, the two biggest films of all time. So side by side, you had Avatar and Titanic. And, the, you know, among film fanatics and among, you know, cinephiles and everything, when you look at that and when you make that argument, well, that guy has the biggest film of all time. That guy has the second biggest film of all time. And then you really start to break it down, what's included in that list. It's sort of an unfortunate thing because it's an impressive feat when you really look at what he was able to accomplish, considering that all the other top highest grossing films are franchise sequels, um, you know, they are not quote unquote original ideas. Now, of course, Avatar and Titanic, you could say are not original ideas. One's based on a true story and one is essentially Pocahontas, but they are for them, you know, for their story, they are original stories. And um, it's a beautiful thing that he was able to do that essentially with having no background. You know, there was no sequel for Avatar. There was no franchise Titanic was a part of. But on the other side of that, it's really unfortunate and it's really uh, people look at that and they and, uh, you know, it creates this. Well, who cares? He 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 has the biggest films of all time. Does, does the biggest film of all time necessarily mean the quality is, you know, up to par with the biggest film of all time? And that, I think, is really what has held him back, because I cannot tell you how many times I look at polls i look at lists I, I i flip through magazines of the greatest of all time and cameron is not included and i think it has a large part to do with this th this cloud that i think because he was able to achieve so much success it also put some negativity on his name you know what i mean Yes, I do. And, and I would actually, uh, I, I agree with you. And I would uh, uh, submit for your consideration. Um, again, I, I make the comparison. I, I mean, I think some people might make a, a comparison to, let's say, Steven Spielberg's works. But I think uh, an apt comparison can be made to Stanley Kubrick. And this is the assumption that, um, you know, people generally consider Stanley Kubrick uh, or uh, let me take it back. You know, the, Stanley Kubrick is often mentioned as being one of the greatest filmmakers uh, in cinema history, right? And uh, we let's take that assumption that he is some kind of 
um, uh, benchmark, if you will, of, of greatness, at least in the context of how cinema is appraised in modern critical circles. I'm not saying that he is the greatest ever. I'm, I'm, that's not the conversation that we're having at the moment, but I'm just saying for purposes of, of comparison, right? Even Stanley Kubrick, uh, it's been noted uh, in many documentaries about him. He, is, he was always concerned about box office when he was making his films. He was always concerned about trying to make films that were not necessarily just purely quote unquote art films, although the argument can be made that yes, he made a lot of great quote unquote art films. He was very concerned with box office at least my understanding of his, his filmmaking was that he was concerned about making films that were quote unquote hits uh, because that was part of the way in which he could sustain his power uh, as a filmmaker and continue his career the way he wanted to on his terms. Uh, so um, there's this interesting point is a film that is a box office success still considered to be a critical darling. And then at what point is the, the box office threshold is crossed into which territory then that film becomes, let's say, oh, it, it's a it's a mass uh, audience appeal film. It, it, it right. It exactly goes to the point of what you're saying. And so, it, right. My point is that even great filmmakers or filmmakers who have been acknowledged as being great still were concerned or still are concerned even now about box office. Now, granted, I don't think it's necessarily the primary concern for each of these these filmmakers. And I, I, I would even um, uh, hazard a guess that that's probably not the prime concern of James Cameron as a filmmaker himself, too. Right. It's just a byproduct of what it, it's one of his concerns. Let's put it that way. But it, I wouldn't even contend that it's a primary concern. Um, but the point is that even great film artists that we consider great still had uh, in some degree or another concern about the box office. So just because uh, James Cameron's films did find great success doesn't automatically preclude them from the discussion of are they great or not. I mean, at the very least, they should be included in the discussion and then people debate from there. But I think your point is, is very well taken in that his films and his name don't necessarily aren't even in, included at the start of the discussion. Right. Which I think is a real shame. Uh, yeah, it, it very much is. And everything you said is valid. It's, it's, it's that thing of, well, people look at it as this, you know, this, this giant thing that took the world by storm. So uh, let, you know, why should we consider it? You know, it, it found its, its way into pop culture through box office. Um, now, the comparisons between Avatar and Titanic, I think, are... Uh, people fall more on the side of positivity towards Titanic. I think Avatar is really the one that divides people in terms of, of uh, you know, assessing the film on a critical standpoint and then really looking at it as, you know, the biggest film of all time. Do they coincide with each other? Was Avatar deserving of being the biggest film of all time? I think that clouts his name. And another thing I think that clouts his name and his legacy is to – up, up to now, putting aside all of his producing credits, all of his stand, you know, standalone writing credits, even his documentaries, he has only given us seven personal works. Yes. He's only given us seven films. Yes. And when you compare that to someone like Stanley Kubrick, who gave us 13 films in his career, um, 
I think it's because Cameron is so selective. He takes, especially between Titanic, Avatar, and now Avatar 2, the man takes his time. He really does take his time. He actually gives Stanley Kubrick a run for his money in terms of taking time. Yes. Uh, and I think that clouts his name as well, at least for the time being. Like you said, um, you know, maybe down the road, hopefully, people will look back and be like, you lived during a time when James Cameron was around. Holy crap. I mean, that's how I feel right now. We're living with James Cameron yeah. and I have personal you know, opinions on, I have real strong personal opinions on the fact that he is devoting so much time to avatar two, three, four, five. You know, I have real strong opinions on that. You know, he is, he is one of our prime filmmakers working today. You know, why are you devoting so much time to these things? But Hopefully he'll prove us yeah. wrong. But. And actually, I would I would just very gently um, uh, just add a couple of things. First of all, I, I think, yes, on the one hand, the, the fact that his filmography is relatively low might have something to do with the fact that he is not, maybe relatively speaking as much critical appraisal as you and I, you or I might like to see. But I would also suggest that that might not necessarily be all of it, because we do see other directors, for instance, that have very relatively low uh, uh, filmographies or films in their canon, but still get more critical appraisal or attention than James Cameron does. I, I point you to, for example, uh, maybe Terrence Malick. He has a very small number of films. Um, also, uh, Tarantino. I think you know there's a lot mentioned about he's only going to make ten films or something like that. But it's comparable. Um, but you know, Tarantino's name I think is probably mentioned more uh, in that discussion of who is the who are some great filmmakers then i think cameron's name is um so i don't know if the the filmography number has any direct correlation or i'm, I'm i don't quite see it but um uh i i uh, uh, what was i saying oh yes i i do think that it does take time and i think time is always uh your friend and i would also uh point to another example uh, I know it's not quite the same, but maybe another example might be someone like, oh gosh, Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock films, when they were released, were generally considered to be entertainments. Sure, they had certain uh, awards uh, contention, or they had certain they were contenders for certain awards, but more or less they are considered entertainments. I think first and foremost, and then I think as time uh, passed, many of his films were considered not just entertainments; they were considered great works of art and especially when you had i don't know french critics coming in and really uh, appraising his works then people started to take a uh, different appreciation of uh, the works of alfred hitchcock so that now for for the most part anyway his works are considered works of art rather than just quote unquote mere entertainments i think the same can be true for james cameron and uh, the the appraisal that he and his films might get uh, five years from now, 10 years from now. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate that perhaps a lot of this appraisal might come after a director has passed away. And of course, I don't want to, I, I want James Cameron to live on for many, 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 many years and make as many films as possible. But I'm just suggesting that usually that's the general trend that, that we see a lot in, in cinema over the course of its, its uh, still relatively short history, but it's, you know, 100 years plus history, you know, these things sometimes take time. And so I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, hopefully it'll, it'll come early 
than uh, uh, earlier than uh, than one might think. Very true. Very true. And I think if there's anything that anybody listening to this can take away from you know what you and I have said is that there is really no uh, one reason for mm-hmm. why a particular person, James Cameron aside, why anybody maybe not. Uh, maybe will not fall into a category of quote unquote, the greatest of all time. But I do think that, uh, well, not that I do think you and I definitely do agree that for the most part, um, cause I do know you said on one hand, but on the other hand, um, he is underrated. He is underrated. And, uh, some would be like, you're crazy. You're crazy. And again, they would go towards that box office thing, but really have to put that aside and really look at, what do people consider, you know, of James Cameron's legacy? And I think it's, I think it's definitely falls into that underrated category. I don't think people give that guy, give the, give James Cameron enough praise. Uh, some would say that we're crazy, but uh, I think that you and I are, this is the one topic out of the, uh, what, the, the eight uh, or six or something like that, that, that we uh, definitely agree on. So. Uh, there it is, everybody. There it is. Those are the topics that Daisuke and I planned to uh, talk about. So uh, wrapping it up here, I just wanted to first and foremost say, um, uh, Daisuke, I had uh, the best time talking to you. Um, and uh, before I let you go, I did want to touch on, to kind of wrap this episode up, end it on a high note, uh, James Cameron's inclusion in the Criterion Collection. And the thing I wanted to lead in with before we get to that is why is, and I stand by it as being essentially the premier label, why is the Criterion Collection this this almost benchmark where people think if you get into the Criterion Collection, if, if one of your films ends up in that thing, you're, you're you know, on top you know you are some someone special why is why does the criterion collection have that going for oh that's a great question and before i i continue i just want to say i want to thank you also for your very kind invite it was such a, a pleasure uh, talking with you um and i hope this is uh, the first of many you know whether it's on this podcast or maybe my youtube channel or just even off uh, just it's a wonderful to to be able to talk with you so thank you very much for this opportunity um as for your question about the Criterion Collection, uh, just, I guess, to be as brief as possible. Criterion Collection is considered the premier label because it, it did a lot of the things that we've come to take for granted, I think. First, it was revolutionary. Uh, back in the days when Laserdiscs uh, were uh, in vogue, as it were, Criterion were, uh, was uh, the first company that was really trying to push the boundaries uh, they're trying to create commentary tracks, for instance. They're trying to preserve aspect ratios, for instance. They're trying to create more supplemental materials, for instance. And these things caught on. Um, and, but that, that created the aura, rightly so, that Criterion's presentation was second to none. And it was both in terms of visual presentation own presentation, but also in the extra features packaging that Criterion would try to prepare for many of its titles. And so that reputation, uh, I think, continues to this day. So that's generally where I think um, that reputation comes from. 
Yeah, it's so fascinating because it does have that, you know, that 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 real premiere um, kind of status. And uh, yeah, it's probably for all those reasons you just said. And and uh, considering Cameron and his inclusion in that, the fact that he is not represented in the Criterion Collection, what film would you want to see if you were to choose one of his seven as the first? What film do you think would fit? that mold of the criterion collection oh gosh i think oh gosh that's a really uh that's a really good question i think based on our discussion i know i i know mine mine is true lies oh that that was that (laughs) that's my (laughs) runner-up i was gonna say true lies but i think based on position today if i wasn't gonna say true lies it would probably be the abyss i would say the abyss because there's so much background information <laughs> to that film and there's so much drama both in front and behind the camera that i think it it, it pre- pre- presents uh, a lot of potential for uh, interest um it's also i think in many ways and i think you alluded to this it's it, it I, it's not maligned necessarily but it is considered maybe not necessarily cameron's greatest effort right and I agree. I think it's, it's, I think it's really great. I think it's the first two thirds of the film, I think are really great. And I think it kind of gets a little bit wobbly towards the end there, but I, I think for the most part, it, it's, it's really good. It's not my favorite film by camera, but it's really good. But this is the sort of film that I think is almost perfect for the Criterion Collection because it's the type of film that one myself and maybe I wouldn't necessarily give more attention to but if criterion decided to release it i think hmm, maybe i should give it a, a second chance and then maybe upon that second chance i might see it in a different light and i might try i might be able to appreciate it more who knows so perhaps it might uh be a way in which it, it could help to maybe elevate its its reputation among uh, crit- uh james cameron uh film uh, enthusiasts very true yeah that's a really good reasoning um i i did want to ask you uh, if you're like me, I, that's the film out of his filmography I've seen the least. And I have not even seen that film also has a special edition cut that yes. a lot of people use as being the superior version of the abyss, but I have not seen it. Yet. Oh, interesting. Um, have yes, you? I have. Yes. That, and that's the one that I think I am familiar with a little bit more, actually. So I, I really like it. It, it. There's a certain... I, I don't want to spend say too much about it, but I, I do like it very much, yes. Okay. Yeah, because maybe, you know... And what's really funny about our two choices, I you know, you chose The Abyss, I chose True Lies. As of this recording, those are the only two films in his filmography that are not available on Blu-ray. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> very good point. Um, uh, they could really benefit from a criterion treatment. Um, in terms of, you know, being like, all right, The Abyss, True Lies are coming to Blu-ray. And not only are they coming to Blu-ray, they're coming to the Criterion Collection. Um, you know, because I had uh, uh, one of my favorite films of all time, for the longest time, did not have a, a Blu-ray. It was only available on DVD. And then when it finally was made available on Blu-ray, it was also available for the first time on Criterion and uh, it was Punch Drunk Love. Oh. Um, yes, that film I love so much and I was waiting for the day it got a Blu-ray and then I saw that it was, you know, heading to the Criterion collection and I was, you know, 
beside myself with excitement. So I, I, I know that a lot of people would feel that too for these two films, you know, being that it, these are films that people want to hit Blu-ray. This is something that I'm continuously having discussions with, with people that are fans of these films. And, um, and, and, and yeah. also because you, you allude to different versions of, of films, you know, you alluded to the abyss, for instance, or you alluded earlier to Terminator two, um, criterion is also known for releasing different versions of the same film within the same single release. And so you can get, for instance, there are two versions of night of the living dead that it released on its criterion release. There are two versions of the tree of life. Uh, or something like that. So it, you know, Cameron's works, I think, lend themselves very nicely to that kind of release dynamic. So that would be, you know, that would be really exciting to see that and to pack it in with more supplements and and uh, maybe uh, an updated uh, commentary from director or cast and crew or something like that, if that were indeed possible. Um, yes, of course, it I, I, it would be great to see. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a matter of time because I mean I know this isn't a valid argument. But uh, if Michael Bay can be in the Criterion Collection, James Cameron should be in the Criterion Collection. Mm. That's all I'm going to say. Mm. That's all I'm going to say. Um, but having said all of that, um, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. I really, really have to you know, say thank you so much for donating your time to this podcast. Um, it just means a lot to me. And the fact that you, know, you and I have uh, established this connection. Um, hopefully, like you said, down the road, uh, future talks will continue between the two of us because I had the best time talking to you. So oh, thank you so much. That, that, that really means a lot. Likewise, it was such a pleasure. You, you, you have such a great insight and intelligence. It, it's such a, a great thing. Uh, thank you so much. This was a real fun time. So, um, I know you, uh, do you do you have any social media that 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 you want people to follow, or is it just YouTube? Yeah, I, I do, but I'm I'm pretty bad with social media, to be perfectly honest. I'm so YouTube is probably the best way to to reach me. I do have Instagram, but um, and I do have Twitter, but I I don't quite know how to I don't quite understand how Twitter works. So I I I think YouTube is the best way to reach me. So yes, so just my name, uh, Daisuke Beppu at YouTube. Perfect. Perfect. And uh, I will stay in touch with you, Dicecake, because uh, you are definitely someone that uh, I just clicked with instantly. So once again, thank you. And uh, having said that, that has been the episode with Dicecake. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And, um, you know, obviously stay tuned for more new episodes coming constantly. You can find me on social media. You guys know where to find me, but I will have Dicecake's YouTube link down below and I cannot recommended enough to go check out his YouTube channel and support him because he deserves it. So um, any final words before we disconnect? No, just uh, once again, uh, thank you very much for your kindness and generosity. It, it means a lot. Thank you. <laughs>